Hey guys, it's Skylar. I actually wanted to take a moment before we started this episode to thank you for all of the wonderful responses we've gotten to our pilot episode so far. All of us over here at Intractable were so thrilled to see that you guys were liking the show. And we actually have a small request. If you're liking what you hear, consider rating us on the app. The more ratings and reviews we get, the more likely we are to be seen by new listeners. So if you found yourself totally engrossed, like user BR2995 did, let us know. Write us a review, leave us a comment. We'll be happy to hear from you. This week, we've got the first of a two-part episode for you on Israeli and Palestinian identity. And we hope you enjoy. Something you may not fully grasp about this conflict is its size. On a human scale, its impact is enormous. It affects millions of people in myriad ways. Politically as well, its effects ripple around the world. But geographically, this conflict is incomprehensibly small. In American terms, because what American doesn't love comparing countries to the size of states, The whole place is about the size of New Jersey. At least from my perspective as a Texan, it's difficult to wrap my head around the physical proximity of everything you'll hear about in this podcast. Entirely different worlds exist just miles apart. And I'm not just talking about the divide between Israel and the Palestinian territories. You can travel between worlds even just within the boundaries of Israel. You've got Tel Aviv, the young, secular beachfront city where everyone seems to be beautiful, tan, and in the process of founding a startup. But then 30 miles away by car, you've got Jerusalem, in many ways the heart of the conflict, the birthplace of three major world religions. Even some of my friends who are native-born Israelis say that they feel a culture shock when they arrive. For an Israeli, like you take the bus from Tel Aviv, you get there, it's 40 minutes maybe, and it's like going abroad. And only about 10 miles beyond Jerusalem lies Ramallah, a bustling, busy Palestinian city where bakers serve up bread so hot and fresh that you physically can't hold it in your hands for a few minutes after you buy it. From there, you can travel on to places like Janine, Jericho, Nablus, complicated places that most Israelis live miles from, but will never see unless it's in the capacity of their army service. Sometimes, on days when I'm traveling to do an interview, it really gets to me. How can one tiny place contain so many contradictions? How can two people living less than a marathon's distance apart have such insanely different identities and experiences? In our second and third episodes, we're going to explore this map through the eyes of its inhabitants. If you want, you can think of these two episodes as what Yael Levy, our guest in episode one, called the two sides of the coin. I kind of prefer the metaphor of me taking a journalistic baseball bat and whacking the pinata of this place to see what falls out, but to each her own metaphor. The bottom line is, we're going to use these two episodes to bring you as many different voices as possible. So in some ways, you'll be getting a sneak peek at some people you'll meet in a deeper, more complex way later on in the season. And I'll be the first to acknowledge it. There's no way we can cover or even get close to covering all the myriad experiences of Israeli or Palestinian identity. This is a subject we'll return to all the time. But consider this, 
if you will, our first whack at the metaphorical pinata. This is episode two, Crossing the Green Line, part one, Israeli. The funny thing about Israel is that as of this year's upcoming Independence Day, it's only been around for 70 years. That's less than a century by quite a bit, actually. And it means that many elderly Israelis can kind of act as living history vessels. Take my friend Yariv Ben Eliezer, for example. I was born in 1940, and when I was eight, the, the state was uh, founded. You probably haven't heard of Yariv, unless you were one of the students he taught during his decades as a professor of media studies here in Israel. But there's a good chance you've heard of his grandfather. That's David Ben-Gurion, one of Israel's founding fathers, its first prime minister, reading the Declaration of Independence of the State of Israel in 1948. And since he also happens to be Yariv's grandfather, I thought I'd sit down with Yariv and talk to him about what he remembers of the man who founded the State of Israel, and maybe we could get some insight into what it's meant over the decades to be Israeli and how it's changed. After the declaration of the state, my grandfather spent some time in a hotel near the Dead Sea. So my uncle came to say, look, everybody's dancing in the street. You're sitting sad. How come? He said, because I know how much we're going to pay for our independence. And the next morning, the Arab countries attacked us. Most of Yuri's stories go something like this. I ask him what he remembers from the early years, what it used to mean to him to be Israeli, what Ben-Gurion himself used to say about things like this. And he responds by telling me about war. Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Jordan. You know, seven countries attacked 600,000 poor people. And we won the war because of the heart, not because of the ammunition, because we had guns, and they had tanks and, and airplanes. It's a miracle. For a professor of communications, Yariv is sort of an unruly interview subject. In the middle of his stories, he'll stop and ask me personal questions like this. They pray were answered by people who were not messengers of God. Do you believe in God? I don't know. That's not the question. But as we sit in his living room, in one of the northernmost neighborhoods of Tel Aviv, drinking coffee, Yariv continues to tell me bits and pieces of the history of Israel, which is to say bits and pieces of his own family's history. And I start to realize that it's not just Yariv's grandfatherly ways that steer him towards these grandiose stories. Yariv, like nearly every Israeli who was born after him, served in the military. And in a way, Israel's history is its military history. In the not quite three quarters of a century that it's existed, Israel has fought in eight recognized wars. That's more than one war per decade. And if you don't think that this has some effect on what it means to be Israeli, you're mistaken. We thought this is it, this is the destruction of Israel. They launched a war and we decisively beat the hell out of the Egyptian, the Syrian and the Jordanian uh, armies. And I think this is where the trouble comes from.
You might be wondering what Yariv meant when he said that this is where the trouble comes from. So allow me to explain. Perhaps you remember that I spoke briefly in our last episode about the 1967 war and how it built the foundations of the deeply confusing relationship between Israel and the Palestinian territories. That's what Yariv is talking about. In this victory, if you don't understand what I'm saying, we planted the seeds for the problem we have today. Yariv is clear in his interview that he's a leftist. He says it many, many times. But he's an old-school Israeli leftist, a longtime supporter of the left-wing Labour Party. And really, who could be surprised? His grandfather, Ben-Gurion, was, after all, one of the founders of the Israeli labor movement. And although it's not surprising, it does make Yariv's opinions all the more interesting to me. You see, Israel's labor movement was, for the first 30 or so years of the country's history, the winning party. It took until the 70s for there to ever be a government with a majority of any other group. And the fact that one party dominated Israeli politics for such a long time, and during such a hectic, uncertain, and fraught period, no less, had massive implications on Israeli society. It's a complicated thing that we're about to discuss. This story relates to Zionism's early history, to racial relations within Israeli society, and to one exuberant period of hope that ended up going down in flames. It's tied to a moment about two decades ago that shocked the world and, many would say, irrevocably altered the path of the conflict. So allow me for a moment to take you back a little bit in time. The moment is 1995. The economy is doing well. The internet is a relatively new thing. Bill Clinton is president of the United States and Israel is headed once again by the Labor Party. At the helm of this party is Israel's prime minister, the aging and well-respected Yitzhak Rabin. These are the glory days of Israel's peaceniks, left-wing Israelis who grew up with the idea that Israel's wars were fought in order to establish peace in the region, and that soon, peace would follow. In the 1990s, this seemed like it really could be the case. After the Yom Kippur War of the 70s, Israel made peace with Egypt, and ever since had been crawling closer and closer to making friends with its other Arab neighbors and former enemies. In 1993, Israeli and Palestinian delegations met in secret to write the Oslo Accords, one major step towards bringing both sides together for formal peace negotiations. After that, Prime Minister Rabin and Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat met in public in Washington, D.C. to sign the Israeli-Palestinian Declaration of Principles. One of these principles, of course, was the establishment of a Palestinian state alongside a Jewish-Israeli state. And this meant that not everyone supported these negotiations. Israeli right-wingers, especially the religious right, saw any negotiation that would let go of the West Bank, the regions known to them by their biblical names Judea and Samaria, to be a complete betrayal of the Jewish people. Even less religious members of the Israeli right wing gathered in thousands to protest against the Accords. One high-profile member of these protests was Benjamin Netanyahu, whose name you certainly recognize if you know anything about current Israeli politics. He's now prime minister. The people of Israel want a real peace, and real peace means peace with security, peace they can trust, with a partner they can trust. And to many hardline Palestinians as well, the negotiations were considered a loss even before there was an outcome. Yet, to the Israeli center and left, 
things seem to be coming up roses. Those territories that Israel won in 67, which left-wing Israelis like Afrin Yariv had always viewed as bargaining chips in future peace talks, they were finally about to be cashed in. Legal tender for peace, finally worth all the blood that had been shed over them. And so Rabin forged ahead with peace talks. In 1994, he met with King Hussein of Jordan to sign the Israel-Jordan Peace Treaty, bringing a resolution to one of Israel's tensest neighborly relationships. It seemed like the long-embattled state of Israel might finally get to breathe easy. And it was in this relatively optimistic period that, in November of 1995, Rabin took to the overcrowded Kings of Israel Square in northern Tel Aviv, where thousands of supporters of peace had gathered for a rally. Allow me to say I am also moved, he says. I want to thank each and every one of you who stood up here against violence and for peace. The government which I've had the privilege to lead together with my friend Shimon Perez decided to give peace a chance. A peace that will solve most of the problems of the state of Israel. It was a rousing, hopeful speech. And it was also the last speech Rabin ever gave. As he exited the plaza and walked toward the car that waited to take him from the square, Rabin was shot, twice, by a student named Yigal Amir, a right-wing Jewish extremist who claimed to be acting on the orders of God. The death of one of Israel's greatest war heroes, whose peacemaking with the Palestinians split the nation, has left Israel stunned and uncertain. Once again, our top story this evening, the assassination today of Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. Obviously, there's no way to measure how much of an effect this moment had on the Israeli psyche or on its politics, but it is one of those moments that's burned into the minds of every Israeli who was alive at the time. You remember where you were and what you were doing when it happened. Just like with September 11th or the JFK assassination for Americans who witnessed those. Among the memorable tributes to Rabin was this statement given immediately after his death by a visibly emotional President Clinton on the White House lawn. Yitzhak Rabin was my partner and my friend. I admired him and I loved him very much. Because words cannot express my true feelings, let me just say, Shalom, Javier. Goodbye, friend. So, why am I talking in an episode about Israeli identity, about the assassination of Rabin, and the failed peace talks of the 1990s? In part, it's because it hardened many Israelis to the prospects of peace. That hopefulness of the Israeli left ended in dashed dreams. After Rabin's death, the Accord saw a slow public death of their own. And when the new millennium dawned in 2000, Israel was plunged into the chaotic period of the Second Intifada, when Hamas launched regular suicide attacks on buses, restaurants, hotels, and other public venues across Israel. It made many people much less willing to believe in peace plans at all. 
But it's also for another reason. This was the end of an era for the Labour Party, the party of Ben-Gurion and the primarily Ashkenazi Zionists who came to Mandate Arab Palestine from Europe, who built socialist agricultural communes and had it in mind to create a utopian Jewish state. Yariv, to me, is a true holdover of this period of Israeli history. He's a first-generation Israeli who lived out his adolescence and adulthood during the country's early, confusing years. He's an open-minded, critical, compassionate guy, but he comes from a time when Israeli had a much more narrow definition than it does today. It turned out, the more I delved into the questions of Israeli and Palestinian identity, the more I was confronted with the problem I always seemed to be confronted with in this project. The problem of equal and opposite reactions. You see, outside of the fact that the definitions of what it means to be Israeli or Palestinian are each deeply related to the collective historical pain of that group, which I should say is common ground that those two groups share, the two nationalities are also defined by something else. On the Israeli side, it's immigration to Israel, and on the Palestinian side, it's emigration from Palestine. The push and pull that, by now, we're already becoming used to navigating in this story. We'll discuss the issue of Palestinian identity in episode 3, but for now, let's return to Ben-Gurion and Yitzhak Rabin and the hopeful supporters of peace. Because when you're dealing with a country that's only 70 years old, you're also dealing with a lot of really rapid changes at the foundational level. The first generation of Zionists who came to Israel didn't always adapt to the changing demographics of the state. And over the decades following 1948, the demographics changed a lot. Waves of Jewish immigrants arrived to Israel from the Middle East and North Africa. These groups, known as Mizrahi and Sephardic Jews, often faced massive discrimination from their Ashkenazi neighbors. This happened in formal and informal ways, from Mizrahi families being told they would be relocated to Tel Aviv and instead being put onto buses with a one-way ticket to Israel's more underdeveloped desert areas, to the everyday casual discrimination, name-calling and stereotyping. So I'd like to take a moment to talk about this split because in order to understand Israeli identity, you need to also understand the ways that immigration has shaped it. here in the early 50s, I think, 53. This is Yoav Koko. If you remember from our last episode, I mentioned a painful period of time shortly after Israel declared statehood, when Jews from all across the Middle East were pressured to leave their homes and lives behind. That's when Yoav's family left Iraq. The story goes, as far as I know, that during that time, there was a lot of animosity towards Jews in, uh, in Iraq. It was a, my grandfather was a businessman. His nickname was Coco. My family name was Cohen originally. And uh, so when people asked him what was his name, he just said Coco. Because with the rising animosity in, in Iraq, you wouldn't want to have a name like Cohen. And they were basically kind of had to just leave everything behind. 
Yoav is 26. He was born and raised in Tel Aviv, and he grew up in the 1990s and early 2000s, in the time period I was just speaking about before. Growing up, however, he heard his father's stories of a very different Tel Aviv than the one he knew. The stories I always heard from my dad uh, about growing up in Tel Aviv were quite bitter. Uh, I know my grandfather hated it here. He never bothered to learn Hebrew. So he just had Arab friends in Jaffa and all the fishermen, and that was, that was his crowd. Yoav's family, arriving to 1950s Tel Aviv, didn't fit in with the city's Ashkenazi majority. They spoke Arabic, they were clearly not European, and they belonged to a different culture than the other families. When Yoav's grandfather carried his cloth past the schoolyard, for example, shouting to potential customers about the various cottons he had for sale, Yoav's father received jeers from his Ashkenazi classmates who ridiculed him for his family's perceived Middle Eastern ways. Still, Yoav's grandfather had plans to raise his kids in the midst of this majority Ashkenazi society, but he knew he had to do it carefully. While they were living in Jaffa, my grandfather took some of that money and built a building in northern Tel Aviv, which was predominantly Ashkenazi Jew, white, and it's, uh, it's on the fourth floor, there's no elevator. And the reason is because uh, supposedly they couldn't sell any of the apartments in the house um, while other residents know that an Iraqi family is going to move in. So they had to keep it quiet, sell all the apartments and take the one all the way up. My dad still lives in that apartment, actually. And so Yoav's family moved into the fourth floor unit the only non-Ashkenazi family in the building, or even on the block for that matter. But that wasn't the end of the family's run-ins with discrimination. Yoav's father was tormented by classmates and even teachers at school, who regularly referred to him as the Arab. And as for the other tenants in the Coco's building, it turned out that Yoav's grandfather had been right in suspecting that they might not accept Iraqi neighbors. The family's youngest son, Menashe, was turned away from the neighbors' homes by parents who refused to let their children play with him. How did you relate to your parents' background? Like, did you see yourself as Arab? Like an Arab Jew? Yeah. I didn't see myself like that when I was a kid. That wasn't... Wasn't that term wasn't in my system? You know, it was, I never heard it before. Arab Jew. That wasn't really something you would hear in the '90s. It was Mizrahi. Um, but I think similar to a lot of these kind of stories from all across the world, we're talking like what 40 years difference. A lot changes, but in 40 years, we're you know. Kids are being like made fun of by adults in the streets and and you know all these things. A lot of things change, but something stays. There's still this feeling that I felt more when I was a kid that it's better to be what I'm not. You know, it's better to be Ashkenazi white. I asked Yoav what he thought about these stories growing up. 
to what extent they felt like a completely different Israel, or whether he could still feel the roots of this problem clinging on. So, do you feel like you grew up in a really different Tel Aviv than your dad did? Yeah, I definitely grew up in a different Tel Aviv. But even like when I was a kid, like 90s, 2000s, you know, you grew up in Israel, all of the TV and movies, like whenever they depict an idiot, it's always Mizrahi. You know, it always has the thick accent. Like the, the worst behavior is always considered to be Mizrahi Jews or, you know. We went south, we went north, we had nothing to lose. But one thing we knew, a day would arrive when we'd have to join hands if we'd want to survive. Let's give away our rifles, let's get tail of our race. We are merchants by trade, life's a big marketplace. This song, called We Are All Jews, comes from the English adaptation of the 1954 Israeli drama Casablan. It's been referred to as the Israeli Romeo and Juliet, or the Middle Eastern West Side Story. But it's not a story of forbidden love between an Israeli and a Palestinian. It's a story of forbidden love between two Jews. A Moroccan Jew named Casablan, named after the city where he was born, Casablanca, and Rachel, the Ashkenazi Jewish woman that he falls for. In the song, the townspeople of Jaffa give a rousing vision of the Zionist ideal of universal brotherhood between all Jews, regardless of their background. In principle, the song's lyrics suggest, the thing that should matter most to Israelis is that they all have one thing in common, their Jewishness even if that Jewishness and the cultures that Jewish immigrants bring with them can at times seem very different. Of course, all of this, the song and dance routine, the plot arc of Forbidden Love, is predicated on the fact that this universal kinship isn't always a widely accepted truth. You're simple ass. You're such a thief. You'd put your mother on relief. You feel this gum, you love to cheat. Why must you whine? Kiss my behind. You bloody twine. Just what kind of Jew are you? Just what kind of Jew are you? A lot has changed since the 1950s when Yoav's father was a teenager. These days, as a combined demographic, Israelis of Sephardic and Mizrahi, or Middle Eastern descent, make up about half of Israeli society. Plus, intermarriage between these groups and those of Ashkenazi descent is on the rise. But when I asked a friend of mine, Steve Miller, about this divide, it became clear that it hasn't faded all the way. There are parties that you look at the numbers and you can say this is a Mizrahi or Sephardi party and this is a Ashkenazi party. Steve is an American-Israeli pollster and political consultant, and he's worked with both coalition and opposition parties in Israel. And since he's so familiar with the numbers, I thought he would be a good person to turn to for insight into whether there's a relationship still between your family's ethnic background and your political views. Um, and those are pretty clear. You know, Shots, for example, um, you know, more than 80% of their voters will self-identify as Mizrahi or Sephardi. Mm. Um, if you look at uh, parties on the center left, like um, you know, Labor, the Zionist Union, uh, Yeshitid, Merits, the vast majority of them, you know, you, know, you can even hit 60% in some of the survey research, shows um, clear... Ashkenazi majority. And so um, you see this in 
in um, the breakdown of the party. So you see the sectoral politics. By the way, you see this in every country um, where the politics of identity and race uh, play an important um, role. They are still very defined in voting habits and ideology. And with every generation, that will become uh, less definitive. You know, a generation of, of of youth in Israel who one parent comes from is an Ashkenazi, uh, you know, Ashkenazi heritage, another, mm-hmm. you know, from Sephardi heritage. And that, that blending and that melting pot that makes Israel so beautiful um, is going to have an impact on the vote. And I think we're going to see the politics of identity between those two groups change over time. Guess what kind of Jew are you? Guess what kind of Jew are you? In preparation for this episode, we realized we were attempting the impossible by tackling something as massive as identity. For example, if we actually wanted this episode to be a comprehensive attempt at telling you what goes into Israeliness, once we opened the Pandora's box of talking about immigration, we would need to talk about all of the consecutive waves of movement into Israel. We would need to cover those who came from the Soviet Union, from the United States, and even from Ethiopia, which might surprise people who are unfamiliar with the region. I also didn't know about this until I arrived to Israel. So there are topics that we won't be able to fit into this episode. Ones we'll pick up on later, like what motivates those in the Jewish or Palestinian diasporas to return to this land? What the effects are of living in a society that is almost constantly engaged in war? what it's like growing up in some of each society's more marginalized ethnic groups. But we figured the more opinions we collected, the more likely it would be to crowdsource something close to the beginning of an answer, at least. So we asked almost all of our interviewees a simple question, but one that ended up being incredibly difficult to answer. What does it mean to you to be Israeli? Or of our Palestinian interviewees, what does it mean to you to be Palestinian? It's a weighty question, for sure, and many people on both sides avoided responding to it. But a few people tackled it really thoughtfully. One of these interviewees was Daniel Reisner, a legal expert and a negotiator whose resume is so long, it's honestly sort of shocking. Daniel will make a much longer appearance in an episode further down the line, but for now, I'll just say that he was a senior member of all of Israel's major peace delegations. He's advised several prime ministers, including Rabin, and we'll cover all of that later on. For now, here's what he had to say about what it means to him to be Israeli. My father was born in Germany in 1914, that's 103 years ago. I heard the story, not from him because he passed away when I was nine, but from my older brother. When he finished high school, he failed his English exam. The only problem was that my father was the best student in class. So he went with his parents to the Jewish English teacher at his high school in Hamburg, Germany. And they said to him, but why did you fail him? He was the best student in the school in English, and he'll never get into university with such a grade. And the teacher said to him, you need to understand that because I'm Jewish and you're Jewish, if I gave you a good grade, we would both suffer. And as for going to university, we have no future here in Germany, so we better run away right now so you shouldn't care about your high school grades. And my father uh, picked up his family. He was 
18 and a half, and he emigrated to Israel before everything which happened in Germany. They were smart enough to get out early. And they moved to mandatory Palestine. And my father, who had never been a manual laborer, started help erect kibbutzim. And then he joined the Haganah and was a major in the War of Independence in one of the regiments. And I'm his son. And I was born here uh, 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 with the understanding that none of this was given to us. All of this was the result of the hard work of people who risk everything and came here so that the next generation would have a better life. Um, and that is a heavy legacy. And for me, being an Israeli is to pick up that baton and move it forward a generation. Which means I have to help create a country which is better for my children and their children, economically, socially, equality, and security-wise. Uh, so that, you know, when their turn comes, they inherit something which is better and somewhere which is safe for them, because if there's a lesson I've learned is that while other parts of the world may be more comfortable, for the Jewish people, on average, the only safe place in the world is here, in spite of all the neighbors and everything. So that's more or less what I think when you ask me what I mean by being in Israeli. Something that Daniel Reisner said just then is something that's been on my mind a lot. For the Jewish people, on average, the only safe place in the world is here. This is, time and time again, going to come up as a shaping force in our conversations. About the conflict, about Israel, about Israeli identity, and about any sort of workable solution to the status quo. The ugly question of anti-Semitism. It's what pushed Jewish communities to emigrate from Europe in the 20th century. It's what killed millions of those who remained. It's what nearly erased Jewish communities across the Middle East. It's what still encourages some Jews from the diaspora to move to Israel today. And many say it's something that is now rearing its head again across the world. Just a week ago, for example, an elderly Holocaust survivor named Muriel Knoll was murdered in her apartment in Paris in an alleged anti-Semitic attack. A few months ago, I spoke with writer and activist Annika Hernroth-Rothstein about her views on anti-Semitism in Europe, the meaning of Israel and Israeliness to the diaspora community, and what Israel means to her when it comes to her religious faith. Here's a short piece of our conversation. I was I went through my adolescence in the mid '90s, and in that time, my country of origin, Sweden, was going through a bit what it's going through now. In a sense that it was it had a lot of anti-Semitism. There was uh, a far right party that was making great political advances. Uh, in my school, for example, the neo Nazis. Um, that were organized, that were kind of around my age, came to school in these, like, Hitler Jugend uh, uniforms, and they very quickly identified me. My mother worked at the school as a drama teacher and a music teacher. They identified her as a Jew. They identified me as a Jew. And it meant a prolonged period of harassment, like sort of a low-current harassment, as in, you know, physical violence, but, you know, them just letting me know that they know, et cetera, sitting next to me in the cafeteria, standing next to me when I was getting stuff from my locker. When people ask me today, oh, why are you observant or why are you 
you know, so active, I say, well, it's thanks to neo-Nazis because it actually is. Annika is going to make a much longer appearance in our episode about the diaspora. But to me, she had a relevant insight into the growing divide between religious Israel and secular Israel, as well as the one between the diaspora community and the native-born Israeli community. Something that's usually taken as a given when it comes to Israel, but which absolutely affects Israeli identity, is something called the right of return. The ability of anyone with proven, direct Jewish heritage to immigrate to Israel and, at least in a legal sense, become Israeli. In Hebrew, the word for this immigration is aliyah, which comes from the verb for ascension or going up. As a fun fact, immigrating away from Israel is the same. The word literally means to descend or to go down from. Anyway, Annika hasn't made Aliyah yet. She still lives in Sweden. But as a writer, she's a prominent voice in Jewish and Israeli media, and she's had some interesting thoughts on how all of these moving parts interact. There's a, there's a rift between diaspora Jews and Israeli Jews. And I experienced that because I spent so much time in both places. I spent so much time in Israel um, that I consider it a home and, and, but I also see that the, you know, I have a sense of gratitude when I come to Israel. I relate to Israel religiously. I re- relate to the land of Israel rather than the state of Israel. And it is still holy to me in a way that I think some Israelis would probably laugh at, in that I have such a sense of awe and such a sense of gratitude for its existence because I'm living outside of it and, and I go there to, to breathe. I go there for oxygen, Jewish oxygen in that I feel free, I feel protected, I can eat the food I want, which is not, you know, something to be taken for granted when you live in the diaspora, if you keep kosher, and you live in Sweden or in Belgium or wherever, it's, it's very difficult to, to obtain your food, <laughs> these kind of basic luxuries, right? So I feel very grateful for all those things. I also think it's important to remember the Jewish nature and the Jewish aspects of the Jewish state and to protect that and to protect the, the very specific traits that come with being the Jewish state. Sometimes I see in the, in the secular element um, of Israel a sense of, what does it matter we're here? Why do I go to shul? I'm always in shul. I live in Israel. <laughs> this is, you know, I don't have to do all of these things because I am Israeli. Religion is something that, so far, I'll admit I haven't put enough emphasis on. I'm not a religious person, and so, frankly, it's really easy for me to look past the religious importance of, for example, the city of Jerusalem and its holy sites. As I said earlier, and as you heard Yoav state, too, the secular and religious worlds within Israel really can feel worlds apart. Totally different countries just miles from one another. And often, I think, religious individuals get the brunt of the burden for this conflict, on both sides, as though it's a holy war, the reprisal of some medieval crusade. But it's not that, and we'll get back to why later in the season. As Annika and I talked, though, she said something that I found surprising, and I want you to hear it too. I go up on the Temple Mount when I can and with, with a group of religious Jews. And, and one of those days, I, I saw this man. There was a lot of balagan on the Temple Mount, but this man was just sitting there so peacefully studying the Quran. 
and and it made like it filled my heart. It really did because. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people outside of Israel say, "Oh, you know, if only the Muslims and the Jews would understand each other, they would they would come to peace and all things would be well." And I always say, like, no one understands each other better, you know, than the Muslims and Jews. We really do understand each other, and I think, especially from a religious point standpoint, we do. I mean, I've made a point of studying Islam. Um, and I also enjoy one of my favorite things is talking to religious Muslims because I do feel so connected. I feel connected to religious people full stop. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's like we're in a club together of all these like weirdos, <laughs> especially like, you know, in Europe, if you meet another religious person, you have more in common with that person than any secular regular Swede because right. we're all weirdos who let God dictate how we live our lives, right? So. Mm-hmm. What I felt in that moment, though, was that, oh, this is my dream, not only for the Temple Mount, but for Israel, because I want to share the Temple Mount. I don't want to blow anything up or throw anyone out. I want this to be, you know, a holy place for those of us who turn to God in good and bad times and who, like I said, let God and God's Word dictate how we live our lives from, you know, the minutia of daily life to, to the grand things. And and I feel really, really strongly about that. And, and I recently had a very, very meaningful experience in Ramallah with a, uh, an East Jerusalemite, uh, a Muslim guy, and, and I spent the day, he took me to Ramallah, and, and we had these amazing conversations where we're... You know, we, we're so close. I'm so much closer to, like I said to him, I'm so much closer in a way to an Arab nationalist than I am to a secular Jew. Because <laughs> I get where he's coming. He understands me. Mm-hmm. And I understand him. Um, you know, it's, it's like Coke and Pepsi in a way, right? These things are holy to us. And I respect uh, that these things are holy to Muslims as much as I respect that they're holy to me. And that's unfortunately the point at which there will be a divide. There are certain points at which we will never agree. And the sooner we come to terms with that, the sooner we, you know, as, as Rav Soloveitchik said, can live as strangers and neighbors. And, and if we understand that I believe that my truth is the absolute truth and that he believes that his truth is the absolute truth, then we will be able to live side by side. And that's the only way we can live side by side. You know, we we will have to, in my opinion, live with this, you know, until the end of days. I mean, I just, I think that we'll have to manage this conflict forever. Could you list all of the different ways that you've ever described your identity? Oh, God. <laughs> How long do we have? Uh, <laughs> as long as you need. As long as I need. Okay, so the one that I go to in general, and I want to explain where the hell I'm from and why I speak three languages. American, Israeli, Palestinian. Again, Israeli, Palestinian doesn't fit in the whole sentence, so that's a problematic one. Um, but on the most part, I'd say I'm a Arab-American uh, with a Palestinian heritage living in Israel. And that's the most... Um, true, I guess you could call it. If I'm really being 100% honest, that's the only one that kind of defines me mm. wholeheartedly. When you get counted for like a census, say, mm-hmm. would you, you would fall into the Israeli Arab yes. 20% mm-hmm. of yeah. the society. Mm-hmm. 
but that yeah. doesn't totally fit no. for you. No, it's a bureaucratic thing. It's not what I feel. This is my friend Yvonne. If you've taken a peek at our cast and credits on the Intractable website, you'll see her name next to the title Musical and Technical Advisor. She's a wonderful journalist and an Arabic music expert, and she's also a member of the 20% of the Israeli population that makes up a pretty big exception to what we might call the Casablan rule of Israeli identity. If you're a bit less familiar with the demographics of Israel, this number might surprise you. That's roughly one out of five citizens of the Jewish state who are not Jewish themselves. It turns out, at least from a legal standpoint, we're all Jews isn't necessarily the truth. But the friction between the ethnic roots of Zionism and the democratic realities of the state of Israel mean that for people like Yvonne, who have grown up in Israel, but who don't really see their image in the identity of the state, it can be kind of hard to figure out where you fit. Uh, my parents are both Palestinian, Israeli, whatever you call it. I can't really, depends who I'm, uh, I'm talking to. Because if I'm talking to an Arab, I'll say, my parents are Palestinian. If I'm talking to Israelis, then I'll say, yeah, they're Israelis, they're Israeli Arabs. Um, so there's that mess of things over there. Before she was born, Yvonne's parents moved to the United States for work. They had Yvonne in Syracuse, New York, and for the first few years of her life, Yvonne grew up with very little understanding of this side of the world. All of that changed, however, when she was nine years old. Basically after 9-11, my parents kind of decided to move back to Jaffa, um, where my, both my parents are from. And we, I came here at the age of nine, uh, not knowing what Hebrew was, not knowing, you know, what Ju- Judaism was. It sounds weird because I was nine years old. Like, what do I know of the world, you know? All of a sudden, I was exposed to this conflict that I only saw on the news from time to time, just glimpses of it. And so I grew up with a lot of conflict of identity. Because hers is an identity that doesn't exactly jive with people's expectations, Yvonne said... She's often faced with a line of questioning about it. There are a certain amount of preconceptions about who she must be if she's an Arab, and if she doesn't check those boxes, fit those standards, or hold those beliefs, then sometimes it just doesn't really compute for people. A lot of people uh, that are, you know, past acquaintances of mine, where we've had this, these discussions, be like, no, no, you're not Arab. Like, they, they tell me that I'm not Arab. And that infuriates me because that's my heritage. I think the fact that even if I say a lot of the times I'm Arab and I'm proud of that, uh, people will kind of look at me funny and be like, what kind of Arab are you? It's not just the Israeli side of her identity that Yvonne sometimes feels distanced from. When you're with like other Arabs, for example, how do you feel? I feel foreign. (laughs) It's funny, uh, but I feel really foreign and I try I have to think a lot harder um, about the way I talk uh, uh, how 
which is a, it's a weird thing because a lot of Israeli Arabs can relate probably. But a lot of the times when I'm with other Arabs, I try not to speak Hebrew. I try not to use, you know, Hebrew words within my Arabic. Just sticking to like the Arab vocabulary, which is so difficult for me because knowing three languages, it's so easy for me to mix it on a bit and, you know, all the time, especially with people who understand all three. Um, but no, I kind of feel like I need to be very professional and I need to like speak in my language because I'm hanging out with other Arabs and so I have to be as Arab as I possibly can. Yvonne and I talked at length about this, the various pressures surrounding her identity, the simultaneous pull to be a good Arab Israeli while still remaining a true Palestinian. It's an impossible tug of war and one Yvonne says she often feels she can't win. You see it all the time in the media as well. Take this clip of Dima Taye, for example. She's an Arab Israeli who participated in an anti-boycott delegation. She went on to the Arabic language TV channel called Musawa to defend her participation and to denounce those who said she had been paid to act as an Israeli supporting Arab. Israel did not recruit me to improve its image in the world, she says. I am proud of my country, Israel, and as a Muslim Arab, I represent the Muslim minority living in this country, and I represent the democratic state that provides rights to its people. We are an inseparable part of this country, whether you like it or not, and whether they like it or not. Something about that last part was really telling to me. Whether you like it or not, and whether they like it or not. What has been your experience being Israeli Arab during a war? It's probably the hardest time. Um, I've had, I've lived through a few of those and I've worked, you know, when I was in college, I worked in hotels and that sort of thing. And I could see a lot of times, you know, people um, talking stuff, horrible things about Arabs. Or being just the fact, being from Jaffa and hearing that uh, restaurants shutting down and stuff like that because Israelis have boycotted Jaffa as if, you know, giving business to Arabs is a horrible thing. I actually struggled to decide in which of these two episodes to tell Yvonne's story. Does she go into the show about what it means to be Israeli as a complicating factor? Or does she belong in the episode about Palestinian identity to show how it can develop over time given the political situations of one's life? Yvonne herself has a difficult time defining her identity. And so ultimately, I decided, who am I to define it for her? Yvonne straddles two worlds simply by living where she lives and being who she is. And that's a difficult thing. So I'd actually like to let Yvonne close out this chapter with a story of her own. I think her story in general belongs across the divide. Because it's people like Yvonne who complicate our understanding of the very lines we try to draw between people in the first place. It's something that we need to live with. And it's not fair. But we choose to live here. And and this is why we just have to deal with it. This is a thing that we, it, again, as they said a lot in the podcast... It's a status quo. At the same time, though, I mean, it is it is a really difficult status quo, even if it is one that people have to, to deal with. So how do you, how do you like, keep on 
going when it's when things are hard like that? Like, what do you fall back on? I think a lot of time music. It sounds very cliche and cheesy, but yeah, music is the one thing that again puts my thoughts into into like a sense. It gives me structure. Um, for example, when I when the neck becomes round every year, uh, you get a lot of people saying, "Oh, there's no such thing. Uh, never happened." Um, but then you listen to the music, you meet people who were there who experienced that i had a moment where i'll never forget like i mentioned i worked in hotels for a very long time and this one time this old man came to the hotel um it was during pesach and it was passover and you know people don't eat bread and that sort of thing and so he went to buy bread because he wasn't really connected um and i kind of had this conversation with him explaining to him uh, it's Passover we can't have bread here and so on and somehow we got into the conversation of him being a local that he was born in Jaffa that he had family he was from a certain uh, family a local family in Jaffa and he left in 48 uh, and he had lived in Europe his whole life kind of you know he's an old man and he was here with his daughter who was European and he had to come back here on a tourist visa because he no he didn't have papers he was from here he could name every street and where every family lived and who he knows and who he doesn't know from Jaffa and if they're still around or not but he had to come back to his hometown as a tourist that fact resonated with me more than anything because it's unfair um nobody should have to, to to experience that so for this man to come and show his daughter where he grew up but as a foreigner it's i don't even know how to describe that we need to think on the human level you know what are we doing to each other Next time on Intractable, part two of the series, an episode on Palestinian identity. We'll speak with a family in East Jerusalem about the struggle to maintain a hold on the physical history of the old city. We'll explore the role of art in the lives of young Palestinians at a theater in Janine. We'll talk with a Palestinian-American comedian about the role of humor in an ongoing conflict. And I'll sit down with someone who confuses a lot of people. A young Palestinian woman who lives in Tel Aviv and is getting a degree in Jewish studies. All of this and more next time. For now, I'm your host, Skylar Inman, and this has been Intractable. انسى الهم كلنا حنطبق حواليك في عرس الدم نفرح فيك يا عريس Support for Intractable comes from Yale University's Howland and Cohen Fellowships. Produced, edited, and recorded at IDC International Radio, Intractable is made possible with the help of IDC Herzliya's Daniel Pearl International Journalism Institute, an organization dedicated to advancing nuance in today's reportage on the Middle East. For more information about this episode, including documents, pictures, videos, and extra audio that we couldn't fit in, check out our website at intractablepodcast.com. 
You can also follow us on Instagram at Intractable Podcast or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Intractable Podcast. Our business director is Ishan Hill. Our graphic designer is Ivy Sanders Schneider. Our musical and technical advisor is Yvonne Saba. Our editorial advisor is Rona Zahavi. And Michael Dominski and Will Reed are our interns. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Intractable. Yeah.